Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Um, so uh, bef- before we um, jump into this new book, this, the, the, these letters that John has uh, written, um, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you so much for this time this morning, for this uh, group that has gathered together because they want to hear from you. They want to worship you in their song and in their prayers and their study. Lord, I pray that you would use this time this morning. Lord, that you would speak through me and show me the things that you would have me to share this morning so that this would be directly from you. Lord, I pray that, that, that you would be present here, Lord. So we thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well... <clears throat> Um, before we jump into the, like, the book itself, I just want to talk a little bit about the Apostle John. Now, for many people, uh, the Apostle John is, tr- is attributed as the author for the Gospel of John, the three letters of John, and the book of Revelation. Not everybody agrees on that. There's some um, disagreement in terms of did he write all three or did he write the letters? Was he really the Gospel writer and the, and the uh, book of Revelation as well. I happen to believe that he is, based on everything that I read and the similarities in the language and the themes that he talks about, I happen to believe that the Apostle John is the author of the Gospel, the Three Letters, and the Book of Revelation. You don't have to agree with that. You could come and talk to me later and tell me how you disagree, and I could show you how you're wrong. Uh, and that's... <laughs> I'm just saying, not everybody agrees that he's the author. I happen to believe that he is, but you can go and search that out for yourself. Um, John, you know, was an apostle. He was actually one of the first apostles that Jesus called. If you, if, um, you know that he was the brother of James, James and John, and they were fishermen. In fact, they were friends and partners of Peter and Andrew. Did you know that they were partners? You can read that in the gospel. Um, they were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Now, whenever you look through like uh, Renaissance paintings of the apostles, poor John always looks like this very like genteel, soft kind of you know robed guy that's always like you know. And, and you know what? He was a fisherman in the first century. I mean, that's not like today. It's not like a fun hobby. That was a hard job. Like you went out and you worked and you sweat all day long. And he probably was fairly good size and, and even muscular from pulling up those nets all the time. Although when Jesus called him, he was young. Some people believe maybe 15, 16 years old, but he was the youngest of the apostles. So he was a young man working with his brother James, working for his father Zebedee, um, friends with Peter and Andrew, who were their partners, their fishing partners on the Sea of Galilee. Um, so here's some interesting things that I've I learned uh, kind of along the way is that um, it's possible that the Apostle John was also uh, and first a disciple of John the Baptist. Now, I can't substantiate this through Scripture, but I can kind of point to it. Um, we know that uh, John the Baptist, when he came on the scene, he had two followers. The Bible says that he had two disciples. And we know for sure that Andrew, Peter's 
brother was one of them. Well, we know that there was another one there um, that is mentioned in the Gospel of John, although it doesn't mention his name. Now, that's not unusual for John in his Gospel. Didn't ever use his own name in the Gospel. He always referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, which I'm sure the other disciples also loved a lot, that he referred to himself that way. Um, I think John wrote his Gospels after everybody else so that nobody would, uh, uh, they would be like, wait a minute. Um, but there is uh, some scripture that point to the fact that maybe John the Apostle was, uh, an, was a disciple of John the Baptist before Jesus came on the scene with his friend and partner, Andrew, Peter's brother, that those two guys were following. Now, at one point, you see that John the Baptist is there at the Jordan River, and he's got these two disciples, one of them uh, being Andrew. And Jesus comes walking along, and John points to Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It says at that point, these two disciples then started to follow after Jesus, and at which point he turns around and he says, What are you doing? And they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. And and from that point on, it's uh, implied in the scriptures that those two guys started to follow Jesus to wherever it was that he went. And he spent the day with them. And from that point on, they went back. Andrew, it says, went back and told his brother Peter all about Jesus. Now, it makes sense to me that John at the same time would go back and tell his brother James, um, because when in the scriptures, when Jesus does finally come along the shore and he says to um, them, follow me, they go. They follow. In fact, it says that James and John leave their father Zebedee and his hired men and just go. I just think that's very interesting that maybe John was a disciple of John the Baptist first with Andrew. Makes sense to me. Can I prove it? No. Do I think it's true? Yeah. Does it matter to this? No, it's just fun. Now, here's another interesting point. It's also possible that James and John weren't just partners and friends of Peter and Andrew, but may also have been cousins to Jesus himself. Now, you can see if you read through the scriptures of the, of the crucifixion scene, each section of the gospel that talk about the, the crucifixion, and it specifically goes through the women that were at the cross of Jesus. Mary Magdalene was there, Mary, Jesus' mother, and there's uh, the mother of James and John. Her name was Salome, the, husband, the wife of Zebedee, is mentioned specifically in one gospel. In another gospel, there's a woman that says it's, G- it's Mary's sister, but she's not named. And so if you start to line up the gospels and say, who were the women that were listed in which way? Salome was there. Mary's sister was also there. It's possible that Salome was Mary's sister, which would have made James and John Jesus's first cousins. Okay, now that again makes sense to me because when he came and first started calling people to follow him on his ministry, he went to James and John and Peter and Andrew. James and John, he might have known growing up because they were his cousins, if they were. Um, they would be very likely to go with him at this point when he says, come and follow me. They said, hey, here's our friends, Peter and Andrew, and they're all together. Again, can I prove it? No. Does it really matter here in this book? Not really. I just think it's really neat. Well, who does Jesus call to follow him closer than any of the other disciples? 
Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John go with them onto the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John go into the, to the bedroom of Jairus to heal Jairus' daughter. Peter, James, and John are the ones that he calls further into the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of his life to pray after he's left all the other disciples. These are the guys that were closest to him. Maybe it's because he was related to them. Maybe it was because he knew them growing up. I don't know. I just thought that was cool. So take, take that as you. If you don't agree, that's okay. That, that, that's okay. I just thought it was really neat. But, um, so let me tell you a little bit about James's timeline. It's a little bit, uh, excuse me, yeah, not James. I'm not going to talk about James. I saw Cynthia goes, James. John. Talk a little bit about John's timeline. Um, it's very difficult to nail anything down very specifically because every time you read about him, you, you find slightly different details in terms of dates. Um, but this is, kind of, uh, this is kind of how I've boiled it down a little bit. You know, from, the, from 28 to 33, <laughs> that, that timeline right there, AD, is that time that John spends with Jesus until the crucifixion. Now, remember at the crucifixion, again, this is another point that maybe they're related. Jesus on the cross looks down and who's sitting? All the women and John. And so John says, John, behold your mother. You know, please take care of her. And, you know, that would seem very natural to John if it was his aunt especially, right? Doesn't that kind of make sense? This is like I'm coming out of left field. I don't think so. But anyway, you've got this time, 28 to 33 AD, where John is with Jesus, right? And then Jesus is crucified. He says, please take care of my mother. So anywhere between 30 and 70, John is now in, um, well, first of all, we know that he travels around for a while with Peter because in the book of Acts, it says that he travels around the area preaching the gospel, getting beaten up and getting arrested. But at the same time, taking care of Jesus' mother, we know he's doing that. Sometime between 30 and 70 AD, he's in Jerusalem leading the church, preaching the gospel with Peter, taking care of Jesus' mother, Mary. Now, at some point, John flees to uh, or goes to Ephesus. Now, again, there's a pretty broad range of time when this could have happened. But remember, um, Titus, the leader of the Roman army, comes in in 70 AD and basically destroys the temple. And there's intense persecution going on. And so maybe it's at this time that he decides it's time for me to go up to Ephesus and get involved with that church up there. Maybe it was before. Maybe it was under the persecution of Nero when his, when his uh, brother was um, uh, killed. Uh, Any time in there, at some point, he leaves Jerusalem and he goes up to Ephesus. Now, while he's in Ephesus, he discovers that there is some heresy going on into the church, which is kind of what we're going to talk about, because this is where he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, under the, at this time, under the reign of uh, another Roman emperor called Domitian, there's more persecution, and John gets arrested, um, and he's brought back to Rome. Now, this you have to read about in uh, a, center, a second century historian called Tertullian. Okay? Tertullian records that John is brought back to Rome, arrested under persecution, and brought into a big coliseum because he's been teaching you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Christians are now under persecution. He's brought back to a coliseum where he is taken and dropped in front of everyone into a huge vat of boiling oil to kill him. Okay, Now, 
Amazingly, John, according to Tertullian, comes out of the vat of boiling oil unscathed, completely unharmed. And as it's recorded, the entire Colosseum converts to Christianity in that moment. Is that all it takes? <laughs> you just go into boiling water, come out unscathed, and everyone's like, yeah, I believe you now. You know, I don't know if that's true or not, um, but I've read in the Bible, Jesus say, no matter what signs and wonders people see, they're still not going to believe. So I don't believe that John comes out of a va- I do believe probably that happened. But did the whole Colosseum convert to Christianity? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Well, seeing that, you, seeing that he cannot kill John... Because uh, by boiling him in oil, which you would think would do the trick. Um, he banishes John, Domitian banishes John to an island called Patmos, which is like a prison island where they would send prisoners. And a lot of them were Christians because they were being arrested for preaching Christianity. And so John then is banished to the island of Patmos, where he receives the vision from God that is later then recorded as the book of Revelation. Now, after he's there, he actually returns back to Ephesus, where he lives out the remainder of his life and dies of old age, as far as we know. In fact, he may be possibly <laughs> the only of the disciples, or the apostles that dies of old age. I mean, there are recorded um, deaths of all of the other apostles, um, death, uh, uh, the death of a martyr. Although, as I really dug deep into that, even some of those are like, well, maybe he was sawed at half. Maybe he was beheaded. Maybe he was, you know, sometimes the details just get a little bit lost. But what we do know is John actually died an old man um, of, uh, of, of old age, not uh, being boiled in oil, miraculously. Um, and so that's kind of the, that's the guy that we're talking about here, John the Apostle. Now, remember... I always think of John, and it always makes me laugh. I mentioned like the, the, the Renaissance paintings of John, who's very, you know, gentle and soft. Um, but Jesus nicknamed John and James the Sons of Thunder. Um, and we don't know exactly why he called them the Sons of Thunder. It may have been because there was one instance that we read in the Bible where there was some Samaritans that did not welcome them into the village, and, they, and the James and John were like, Jesus, you want us to call down lightning and fry them from heaven? Can we, can we, can we? <laughs> and I think Jesus was like, whoa, Sons of Thunder. That was the name of our baseball team uh, <laughs> at my church up in New York. <laughs> The Sons of Thunder. We were terrible, though. <laughs> we never won. We didn't won. Anyway, this is the Apostle John. This is who wrote this letter that we're going to look at today. And the reason why I believe that God was leading me to go into this book after we had just come out of Deuteronomy is because one of the themes of Deuteronomy that really started to make itself clear to me was this idea that um, God, above all else, wanted a relationship with his people through and through which would come their obedience and worship of him alone. But he desires relationship. In fact, that's why he created humanity, to be in relationship with him. The book of John, uh, the letter of John here, um, is about what we said here, love above all else, relationship, loving God above all else and loving our neighbors, our brothers, our sisters above all else. And it talks going to talk about something here called koinonia in this first chapter, which is loosely uh, the word that we use, fellowship. Fellowship. 
And I think that John, uh, what we're going to see here is John is going to lead us into a letter that has to do with fellowship and love and understanding of who God is and what he has called us to. Now, to really get a handle on this first letter um, that John writes, you have to kind of get an understanding of what was going on. Uh, why, like, why did he write this? Why did he write this letter? What was going on at this time? Why did he feel it was necessary to write this letter? This is going to help us as we go through this letter. And so let me explain a little bit about what was going on at the time. See, there was some heresies already coming in. And so let's just drop this letter somewhere in... 68, 69, 80, somewhere around there. Let's just, let's just assume that he wrote it somewhere around there. By this time, it's like 30 or so years later after Christ's uh, crucifixion, that there are heresies coming into the church. Um, and what they were saying was that, okay, Jesus may have been holy, but he wasn't like a physical man. He didn't have a physical body. He was a spirit or like a phantom. You know, and, and these people were coming in and saying, you know, if you were walking with Jesus on the beach and then you looked behind you, you would only see your footprints because he didn't actually have a body. He just appeared to have a body. And, uh, and so that was like, it was, it was a, a doctrine called doceism, okay? But it was the early seeds of what would become Gnosticism, okay? And so what they taught was that... Um, there's a separation between the physical and the spiritual. In fact, what they got to the, was the point was that anything, if, if Jesus was just uh, spiritual and he didn't have a physical body, he appeared to, but if he didn't, then anything spiritual is holy and anything physical is, is evil or bad. And so what happened is you started to see some factions divide, even within this doctrine, where you had one group that said, okay, if everything is physical is bad and everything spiritual is holy, then we're going to just completely deny ourselves of anything physical at all. And they began to live a very, and, and, and call people to a monastic style uh, of, of living. And so they would deny themselves of literally everything physical. And so you would see them and they would be skin and bones and, and they would have ragged clothes on and they would, they, they would say, look, we can be holy because we don't do anything physical. We completely deny ourselves of anything physical at all. And you all have to do this as well. If you want to be as holy, you have to only be spiritual, completely separate yourself from anything physical at all. Now, the other side of that would say, all right, if holiness is spiritual and everything physical is evil, then anything we do that's physical doesn't matter because uh, it's the spiritual side of us that counts. And so what they said is we can act and do whatever it is that we want to because it doesn't matter. It's the, it's, it's the spiritual side. You know, it's the inside. You know, what's inside my heart that really matters no matter what I do or however I act. Now, obviously, a lot more people were drawn to that because that was like, you can live a lifestyle however you want as long as in your heart, you know, you're being spiritual. You know, the physical, you can live a livacious uh, lifestyle of, of um, immorality because you've separated your physical from your spiritual. That's what they were teaching at the time. You know, Jesus wasn't flesh and bone. He was spirit. So anything spiritual is holy and everything fleshly, it doesn't really matter what you do fleshly. Fleshly is bad. It's separated. We've separated that. <clears throat> I think that's still going on quite a bit today, don't you think? 
There is kind of this idea of, you know what, I can act however. I mean, it doesn't matter how I act physically. God knows my heart. Well, God does know your heart, actually, in that situation. And God knows that that is a bunch of baloney. That you're, the way that you're active is like, you cannot separate that. You can't say, well, I can live however I want to. Um, but, you know, I, in my mind, I'm with God. And God would say, uh, and, and John's going to be like, uh, no, no, you're not. That's, that's not how it works. You can't separate that out. It doesn't work that way. The other part of what will become known as Gnosticism was that they claimed we have secret knowledge. Gnosticism means to know or knowledge. It's the word for that. And so they said, the reason we know this is because we've been given secret knowledge. Um, so if you want to know what we know, then you have to come along with us and we'll share with you our secret knowledge. But if you don't have the secret knowledge, then you don't know what we know. Do you know? <laughs> That's funny. I was just talking to a friend this week. I think it was this week. And she told me that her husband's friend sat down with her and said this. And I'm, I'm, I'm shocked to hear that this is still going on. This Gnosticism is still going on. Um, disguised as Christianity. This person said to her, Jesus wasn't his real name. Did you know that? Jesus wasn't his real name. That, that's not what they were calling him. Now, if you're surprised by that, Jesus was the Greek form of his name, which we talked about, which was Yeshua, right, um, in Hebrew. But was even Yeshua his name? Well, it was his earthly name, but what was his name? Prince of Peace, Emmanuel. All these names that it says that he will be called by. But when he was there, his name was Yeshua, which is translated into Greek, Jesus. This guy was saying to my friend, no, no, his name wasn't Jesus. If you are calling him Jesus, you're calling him the wrong name, which means you're in disobedient to him, and he does not honor that. And so you're worshiping a false god. So my friend very smartly said, okay, what is his name? To which he said, well, it's more than just a word. I can't tell it to you. You have to come to this class that I teach. And I was like, that's Gnosticism. I can't tell you what his name is. You have to come and learn the secret knowledge that I've discovered that will explain to you what his real name is so that you can be in obedience to him and call him his real name. And when I hear someone say, well, Jesus wasn't his name, so you're not worshiping Jesus, I think that's ignorance. That's just an ignorant understanding of the word. Yeah, it would be like if I went to another country and my name in another language sounded different. Uh, if, Let's take Cesar, for example. He's going to love this. His name is Cesar. Many people call him Caesar. That's not his name. But if he's standing there and you say, Caesar, he says, yes, because he knows, even though you're not calling him his real name, that you're speaking to him. If Jesus isn't his, you know, if I'm calling him Jesus, he knows that I'm talking to him. Is he going to respond? Of course he is, right? Even if he's, he's not going to sit and be like, nope, nope, that's not my name. My name is Yeshua, and, and, and that, maybe not even that. But this is an example of Gnosticism, secret knowledge that's still going on today. 
So this is why John writes this letter. He's, he's going in and he's, gonna, he's going to go in and defend the heresies that are sneaking in to the church in Ephesus especially, but it's got a broad reach to everybody, including us, as we go through. Now, um, one of the things, because you guys can remember, right at the beginning, we're going to see this idea that these people are coming in, these heretics are coming in with these ideas and claiming to have the authority to be able to tell you these things. John's going to come back at them with, no, um, I have the authority and here's why to tell you the truth. Um, and so this is kind of how he starts off. In, in my version, I have the New King James Version, it says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. That's verse one. That which was from the beginning, he starts off with. That in Greek, that word that, is a relative pronoun. And it means who. So where in my English Bible, it says that which was from the beginning, what he wrote was who, which was from the beginning, who, which was from the beginning. And who is he talking about? Jesus. How do we know that? Because John wrote in his gospel, listen to this. This is from John's gospel. Again, very first verse, first uh, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And he is talking about Jesus, saying Jesus was from the beginning. Um, and the way that that's written in, in Greek was that he was, always was, not became, not was born, not was created, but always was from the beginning. So then he goes back in here, and he's again reiterating this in his first letter, and I'll just change it to say, who, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon. Now John is establishing his own authority. He's saying, we, meaning me and the other apostles that were with him for that amount of time that walked around, that we were there with him every single day, which we heard which we have seen with our eyes and which we have looked upon. He uses a phrase, which we have looked upon. In Greek, it is the word that we use for theater. Um, like uh, looked upon when you go to the movies and you are gazing upon the screen in order to take in information, process, and understand what it is that you're watching. That's the word that he uses. So it's not just like, oh yeah, we saw Jesus. No, it says that we looked upon him, we gazed upon him, we took what, what was happening and we processed it within our own minds and our hands handled. So again, he's saying we were there, we saw him, we heard him speak, and what did we do? We handled him, meaning we touched him. He says we handled him. I just want you to think it through in real life. Um, and uh, it's helpful. If you've watched the, the show, The Chosen, it, does, it is helpful in some ways to help you realize, you know, he was with them. There were probably some times that they were sitting around the fire, laughing it up, slapping each other on the back, or you know, giving everybody a hug. This is what he's talking about. It's not like they walked up to Jesus and were like, handled. It's like they were like intimate. They, they held each other. They, 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 you know, hit each other on the back. They, they, they walked together. They, they smelled the smells. These guys, I mean, they walked a lot is all I'm saying. And I don't see a lot of bath going on. 
You know, they smelled each other. They were involved in each other's lives. He's trying to set the audience straight by saying, look, I have the authority to tell you the things I'm about to tell you because I was with him. I heard him. I gazed upon him. I touched his body. I smelled him. He smelled me. Uh, didn't say that, but I'm assuming it. Concerning the word of life, I love that John refers to him as the word, right? Because he's going back to his gospel where he said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's talking about Jesus. He says it again here, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And so what he's basically setting uh, out his um, credentials to be able to say the things that I'm about to write to you, you can believe. These people who have come in to tell you these heresies, they weren't there. They weren't the ones walking with Jesus. They weren't the ones talking with him, uh, handling him. We were there. The things that I'm about to tell you are the truth and you can trust it because I was there. I'm an eyewitness. I heard, I touched, I smelled. I was there, he says. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The word fellowship here is a Greek word. It's called koinonia. Um, and we just don't have a good word uh, in English, one good word that is koinonia. Well, it's been translated fellowship, but it, fellowship, it's, it's deeper than that. You know, it's, it, it, it's uh, yes, it's close proximity. Uh, yes, it's like being friendly. Um, but it's, it's like me sharing my life with you um, and you sharing your life with me, meaning like, like here are the things that bring me joy and here are the things that are a struggle and here are the things that I need help with and, and this is the stuff that goes on in my head sometimes. And now you tell me those same things and it's like we do our lives together. We live our lives near and close to one another. And, you know, sometimes we laugh and have fun and go bowling and throw axes and other times, you know, we just sit there and cry with each other because someone is lost or someone passes away, or someone is sick, or we're just feeling emotionally drained or overwhelmed or under so much pressure, and you know that there's someone that you are in fellowship with, that you have koinonia with so closely that they will listen to the things you say, and they will put their arm around you, and if they don't know what to say, they'll just sit and cry with you. That's fellowship, and gang, that's what God wants with us. That is what God wants with us. Even in Deuteronomy, when they, when they sometimes see him as the fiery voice from the top of the mountain, God says, I created you for fellowship with me. But this is how you get there. You throw off the self-centered idol worship that the world has that says that every time anyone asks you how it's going, you're like, it's fine, it's good, it's fine, it's good, it's fine, it's good. Rather, he says, let's live our lives close you can do that. And, you know, here's the thing. And this is what I see as the common denominator. Like, how can you and I have this closeness? What do we really have in common that draws us close like that? Jesus. Jesus. You know, when we talk about couples that want to grow close together, what we say is both of you grow closer to Jesus. Because the closer you two separately come to Jesus in your walk, the closer you come to each other, right? And I did uh, 
I, I did Ken and Shauna's wedding. We did a, a sand ceremony where you take two separate colors of bottled sand and you pour them together and it all kind of mingles together and creates this really beautiful piece of sand art, which you get to keep forever. But the vessel that it goes in is Jesus. Jesus is the thing that holds them together in that closeness, not just with themselves, but within him. Right? In that same sense, that sense of fellowship is how do we have close fellowship with one another, the actual people who are here walking around that we can, we can, we can see and hear and, and gaze upon and touch and smell. Uh, how do we do that? How do we get that closeness? Well, we start with the foundation of Jesus Christ, and then we come together like that. You know that before Deirdre and I were saved, we felt this like emptiness in our lives. Like we had friends, and I've talked about this before, we had friends that we kind of liked a little, but what we felt like we were missing was community. That's what we called it, community. We didn't have any community. And we were watching the show Friends, and they had that coffee house, and we were like, if we just had a coffee house that we could go to, then we would have all kinds of friends and community. But the answer wasn't a coffee house. What ended up happening is we got introduced to Jesus Christ, and through Jesus Christ, we got introduced to all kinds of fellow believers who were also looking for fellowship. And that's what we ended up having was fellowship, not community. We had fellowship. And it was much deeper. It was much richer. It goes beyond friendship. It goes beyond community. Fellowship, koinonia, and that's what he is declaring to them, that you may also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father, with the Son, Jesus Christ. The fellowship, that's what he is saying. This is what you could have. This is what you need to have. And look at verse 4. It's so beautiful. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Your joy may be full. Not so that you'll be happy. Happiness is an emotion that is caused by circumstance, right? If someone, uh, you know, you can, you can be happy on your birthday because they bring out a cake and we sing happy birthday. We never sing joyful birthday. I never thought about that. We sing happy birthday, joyful birthday. I'm switching it. <laughs> well, happiness is an emotion that's, that comes from a circumstance. Joy is a gift from God that's inside, that you can be in a hard circumstance and still have joy. And if you come across a person who is like going through a really rough time, but somehow they're joyful, they're probably a believer also because they've got the gift of joy inside of them and they're full. Oh, man, I want that. You know what that reminded me of in Deuteronomy last week when we saw the, the blessing of Naphtali? It says, may you be full with the Lord, satisfied, full with the Lord. I'm still thinking about that feeling of feeling full, but it not being full of, you know, smoked salmon and brisket, which was the other night, but full on the joy of the Lord, on the presence of the Lord, being full, being satisfied. And so he's saying, it is from this fellowship with us and with Christ that your joy will be full. They're not always going to be happy but there is a fullness of joy that they can have through the fellowship of Jesus. In verse 5, it says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you 
that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Well, this is a huge, huge concept that God is light and in him there is no darkness. Do you know, and maybe this will blow your mind, okay? But do you know that there is no such thing as darkness? Darkness isn't a thing. Darkness is the absence of light. Do you get it? Let me explain a little more. When you go in, if you want to make a room darker, do you turn up the dark? Or do you turn down the light or pull the curtains and block out the light? You, you create darkness by getting rid of light. There's no such thing as a flash dark. Take a second. There is no thing that you turn on that creates darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. He's saying God is light. There is no darkness at all in God because he is light. So if, if darkness is the absence of light, then darkness is the absence of God. Right? That's a very important concept that he's trying to drive towards is that darkness is the absence of God. Darkness isn't a thing. It's like a hole. You know, we might look at a hole in the ground and say, that's a thing. But what is it really? It's just the absence of the dirt that was there. Now there's a void. That's what darkness is. It's the absence of light. So he says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This phrase, walk in darkness, um, is what we're going to see is if, if we are trying to walk in a way that is contrary to what God has called us to do or walk in a way that is contrary to the way that God has called us to walk, then we are walking in darkness. Um, it's, it's like this. Uh, if, if we go into a dark room, this is what he's saying here. If we were to go into a dark room and say, oh, it's dark in here, and we pick up a stick and start shining it around the room, the room is still dark. But you're saying, no, I've got a flashlight. But what do you have? A stick. You don't have anything that's shining light. But you're saying, I have the light. I have a flashlight. But you're still in darkness. So what you're saying is, I'm denying the fact that this doesn't shine any light. I'm denying the fact that I'm not in darkness. In fact, I am still walking in darkness. And it's a lie. You don't have a flashlight. You have a stick. Now, you could be lying to yourself. You could be being lied to also. You understand that someone comes up to somebody who's in a dark room, who's in darkness. And when this talks about darkness, this is talking about a life separated from Jesus Christ. When you're walking in darkness, you're walking in a life separated. And you could say, no, I know Jesus, but you're walking in the dark. Jesus would say, you know, you don't know me. You're in the dark. You're walking around. And someone says, oh, you're in the dark? Let me hand you a flashlight. And they give you a stick and they tell you it's a flashlight. And you're like, oh, I have a flashlight now because this person said that this is a flashlight. But is it? No. It's a lie still. Just because they said it was a flashlight doesn't make it a flashlight. You're still in the dark. You're still walking around. And we see this so often. Now it's going on like crazy right now. Just because someone tells you something that you want to be true doesn't mean that that's true. You're still walking around in the dark holding a stick thinking you're in the light with a flashlight because either someone told it to you and you believed it or you're lying to yourself and saying, I want this to be a flashlight, but it's still just a stick. 
The room is still dark. Like, why? 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 Why, if someone hands you a stick, do you want to believe that? Because you want to wander around in the dark. What's the Bible say? Man loves the dark. Why does man love the dark? Because it hides all the stuff that we know we're not supposed to be doing, but want to do anyway. And as long as the room is dark, nobody can really see the things in the dark. I mean, you're walking around and you're stumbling over. I mean, if you go into your... Like, I know where everything is in my house. So at nighttime, when everyone goes to bed and I'm shutting off all the lights and everything, I can get to my bedroom without turning on a light because I know where everything is. But if someone pulls, like if my daughter leaves that piano bench out, I'm going to trip over that because it's dark. I can't see it. You know, and it's a very good analogy. Is like you may think you've got your whole life navigable, but you can figure your way around in the dark, but eventually you're going to trip over something and you're going to fall. Um, The light is a revealer. That's why people want the dark. I want the dark. You know, I I don't want this light to reveal everything. There's something about the dark that I want because if I I turn on a flashlight and and there's a, a piano bench standing in front of me, I have a couple of choices. I could still trip over it or I could do something about it and I could move it, right? So light is a revealer. So if the light comes into your life and it reveals something that's not supposed to be there, you then have to deal with it. And that's a good thing, but maybe you don't want to. Maybe you want that thing to be in there. He says that if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Walk in the darkness is I want this lifestyle. It's habitual. It's something that says, I want to act this way. I want to think this way. I want to do these things. But I also, hey, I know God. I know Jesus. I know who he is. But he's saying, but you're walking in the dark. And you don't know me, as he's saying. You lie. You don't know me. Because if you did, you wouldn't be walking in the dark. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, he, by, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his, his son cleanses us from all sin. And so light is a revealer, but it's also a cleanser, isn't it? Right? Do you know, I gave this analogy a long time ago about like if my daughter were, uh, spilled something that she wasn't supposed to have and she takes one of the fancy bathroom towels and cleans it up, and then is afraid now, okay, now I wasn't supposed to have that thing that I spilled, and now I've just cleaned it up with a towel that I'm not supposed to use because they're just for guests, you know. Um, And instead of coming clean and admitting that she did that, she takes the towel and stashes it underneath the sink in the dark, hoping that it will just go away. But it doesn't just go away. In fact, it gets more putrid and, and, and festers in there and gets moldy and gross until... Um, my wife goes in and cleans it. She's like, what is this? And pulls it out. And then, of course, everyone's like, I don't know. <laughs> Even young children will be like, I don't know. Because, well, it's another point that we'll get to later is because we're sinful from birth. The only way that nasty, moldy towel now gets clean is if you yank it out of the dark, bring it into the light, and expose it to the light. All right, you throw it in the washing machine also, but isn't that what he's saying? Bring it into the light, and the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse your sins. Whew. 
Okay, now this is where it gets a little nuts, okay? Because the word sin in English, we just assume means the same thing all the time. But in Greek, in these four verses, it's a different word and it alternates back and forth. It alternates between the disobedient acts that we commit still and the original sin that we're born with that is nest that we need to receive the forgiveness of for salvation. It goes back and forth between the two. It's S-I-N here in the Bible, but in Greek, it's two similar Greek words that also, when combined with the Greek grammar and tenses, changes it back and forth. So I'm going to try and explain a little bit as we go. This one, he's saying that, that uh, he cleanses our acts of disobedience. Those are the sins that we commit here in seven. But then in eight, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Okay, so this is why people get confused here. Really what it should be is seven and nine should be together and eight and ten should be together. Because seven and nine are talking about the acts of disobedience or sin, the transgressions, the iniquities, the sins that we commit. That when we do that, we go to him and say, oh my goodness, Lord, please forgive me that once again I did this thing that I wasn't supposed to do and will you forgive me? And just as it says there in verse nine, if we're faithful to confess it. He's faithful to forgive it. And as we talked about last week, he also says, and now I remember it no more. And no longer are you under the condemnation of a confessed sin to Jesus Christ that you've asked forgiveness for. He says, we're done with that now. Move on. But not eight and 10 aren't talking about that. Eight and 10 are talking about the sin nature that every single person is born with that made it necessary for Jesus to come and die on the cross to forgive us so that we could go to heaven because we can't get there on our own. So in verse 8, he says, if we say that we have no sin, if we say that we don't have a sin nature, if we say that we're not born with sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's saying that if you are a person who says, no, no, we're not, we're born with a clean slate. Somewhere along the line we sin, but we're born with a clean slate. But the Bible doesn't support that. And listen to this, Psalm 51, verse 5. I was born a sinner, yes, from my mother, uh, from the moment my mother conceived me. David writes, I was born a sinner. In Romans, Romans 6, just go and read it later. The entire chapter is the sin chapter. It says, by one man sin entered the world, by one man it was taken out, meaning Adam and Jesus. But it will say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. We know that we're born sinners. Even if you don't believe it, you know it to be true inside. And here's why. Have you, you, we do not, let me rephrase We have to teach our children to share. We do not need to teach them to lie. Have you ever noticed? When you have a child, a little one, little, like three, three years old, and they're like, mine, 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 mine. Why don't you share that with your brother? Mine. They do not want to share. We have to teach that to share. The same day, did you draw on the wall? No. Who did? The dog. They know to lie. We have to teach them to share. They know 
to lie because we're born with sin inside of our hearts. And so he's saying, if we say we have no sin, if you say that you were born without sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, again, verse 9 goes back to, but if we, if we have acts of disobedience, remember, iniquity, transgressions, and sin, the things we, we uh, planned to do, even though we knew we were sinful, the things that we just missed the mark on, the things that we did and denied that they were sin, but then later came to the understanding that, oh, man, you know, the conviction of the Holy Spirit has brought me to this place of confession. When we confess it, he says, I forgive you. If we say in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. Why does that make, why does saying uh, I, don't, I don't have sin, meaning I don't have a sin nature, I wasn't born sinful, why does that make him a liar? Because God said everyone has sinned and so I need to send my son Jesus to die for their sins so that they can be forgiven and they can go to heaven. And if you say, I was not born a sinner, what you're saying is Jesus died for nothing. It was pointless that he came because I don't need that. And God says, everybody needs my son. And if you say, but I don't, you make God a liar. And that is what John is saying. There were some at this point that were saying that They had secret knowledge that said that they weren't born sinners, and so they now were perfect, living perfect and living sinless um, without Jesus involved at all. And John was saying, you can't. You're born with sin. You need a Savior. The entire Old Testament was pointing them to a Savior that was necessary. Here's the law. You can't follow it so that you understand that you need a Savior. Here's the Savior. It's like I drew a picture on the board for the youth group the other day. They had Jesus in the middle of the board, and they had Old Testament over there and New Testament over here, and the arrow from there pointed to the middle this way, and the arrow pointed here pointed to Jesus in the middle, and it was the Old Testament points ahead to Jesus. The New Testament looks back at Jesus, but the center is Jesus. It's the whole message of the Bible. And if you say you don't need him, you make God a liar. A little bit, a little bit. We're going to go in a little bit to two. My little children, those things... I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Okay. Do you see what that's saying? I'm writing to this to you so that you may not sin. If you read through Romans, you will see that Paul writes that we as a Christian believer who's been saved by grace no longer are in bondage to sin. There is no longer a bondage to sin. But do we still sin? Maybe some of you. (laughs) Unfortunately, yes, we do, because although we're not under the bondage of sin anymore, we still sometimes give in to our fleshly and self-centered desire to to do it, to, to sin however we want. But what he says is, if you sin, There's an advocate 
in Jesus before the Father for you. He is saying that if you sin, there is forgiveness for that sin, and so you don't have to walk around with the condemnation of sin, but that you can be forgiven. But it's very interesting that he says, I write this to you so you don't, because we have been given the power over our own flesh to deny our flesh and to not sin, and yet we still choose to do it. But God in his graciousness says that if you do, I've created a way for you to be freed from the consequence and to be forgiven. Amen? I get it, get it, amen. Amen. <laughs> there are um, people <clears throat> um, in, a, in a, a movement called the holiness movement that believe that once you're saved, you don't sin anymore ever. You just don't. Ever. Um, and... Uh, and they'll point to you know, verses where Jesus says, be perfect as I am perfect. And they'll say, so um, I never sin anymore. And um, I was listening to Chuck Smith was visited by someone from this movement. And, and they came and they said, well, you know, do, you think, can you, can you, do you think you can not sin for one minute? And some of you are like, no, no, no. I no, but most of us would say, I think I could probably not sin for a minute. And they said, well, if you can not sin for a minute, you can not sin for two minutes. And if you cannot sin for two minutes, you probably could go for 10 minutes. And I'm like, that's where I'm out. But, and if you could go for 10 minutes, you probably could go for an hour. And if you could not sin for a whole hour, then you could not sin for 10 hours or a whole day. And if you could go for a whole day, then you could go for a whole week. And if you go, and it goes on and on and on. And, I, and, and that's where they come up with this idea, like, you can, um, you know, once you're saved, you don't sin anymore. But, but what I see is he's saying, I would like you not to. But when you do, there's forgiveness. Do you understand? When I say like to my children, don't lie. Are they capable of not lying? Of course. Do they still? Yes. Do I say, oh, you're done? No. I say, I forgive you. If you come to me and confess, I forgive you. Don't lie. I don't want you to lie. But if they do and say, I'm sorry, I lied, I say, I forgive you. And we move on. He says, I write these things to you so that you will have the fellowship with Jesus, the closeness that's so close. That fellowship, remember the apple of his eye, the ref your reflection in his pupil, so close that sinning will be the last thing that you want to do. The, the pull of your flesh to sin will be so far from you. But when you have a moment of weakness or when you decide, I'm going to do that anyway, he says, there's an advocate before the Father, and his name is Jesus, and he will forgive you if you confess. And the condemnation of that sin is wiped away. And we're, that's where we're going to stop today, because it's communion also today. So let's pray first. Lord, we thank you so much for the introduction of this new letter this morning from the Apostle John. Lord, I'm excited about where you want to take us, and <clears throat> Lord, the convictions and the changes that I can already sense that you're starting to work in the hearts of, of all of us through this, Lord. Um, I pray that uh, as we uh, walk through this book together, that even within this body, we would grow closer together in fellowship and koinonia. I just thank you so much. And in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.